Chapter Three of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Chapter Three. The White House by Moonlight. February twenty-fourth. A spell of fine, soft weather. I wander about a good deal sometimes at night under the moon. Tonight took a long look at the President's house, the white portico, the palace-like tall round columns, spotless as snow, the walls also, the tender and soft moonlight, flooding the pale marble, and making the peculiar faint languishing shades, not shadows, everywhere a soft transparent hazy thin blue moon lace hanging in the air. The brilliant and extra-plentiful clusters of gas on and around the façade, columns, portico, etc. Everything so white, so marbly pure and dazzling, yet soft. The white house of future poems, and of dreams and dramas, there in the soft and copious moon. The gorgeous front in the trees, under the lustrous flooding moon, full of reality full of illusion. The forms of the trees, leafless, silent, in trunk and myriad angles of branches under the stars and sky, the white house of the land, and of beauty and night, sentries at the gates and by the portico, silent, pacing there in blue overcoats, stopping you not at all, but eyeing you with sharp eyes, whichever way you move. AN ARMY HOSPITAL WARD Let me specialize a visit that I made to the collection of barrack-like one-story edifices, Campbell Hospital, out on the flats, at the end of the then-horse railway route on 7th Street. There is a long building appropriated to each ward. Let us go into Ward 6. It contains today, I should judge, eighty or hundred patients, half sick, half wounded. The edifice is nothing but boards, well whitewashed inside, and the usual slender-framed iron bedsteads, narrow and plain. You walk down the central passage, with a row on either side, their feet towards you, and their heads to the wall. There are fires in large stoves, and the prevailing white of the walls is relieved by some ornaments, stars, circles, etc., made of evergreens. The view of the whole edifice and occupants can be taken at once, for there is no partition. You may hear groans or other sounds of unendurable suffering from two or three of the cots, but in the main there is quiet, almost a painful absence of demonstration. But the pallid face, the dulled eye, and the moisture of the lip are demonstration enough. Most of these sick or hurt are evidently young fellows from the country, farmers' sons, and such like. Look at the fine large frames, the bright and broad countenances, and the many yet lingering proofs of strong constitution and physique. Look at the patient and mute manner of our American wounded as they lie in such a sad collection. Representatives from all New England and from New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, indeed from all the states and all the cities, largely from the West. Most of them are entirely without friends or acquaintances here, no familiar face, and hardly a word of judicious sympathy or cheer. 
through their sometimes long and tedious sickness, or the pangs of aggravated wounds. A Connecticut Case This young man in bed 25 is H.D.B. of the 27th Connecticut, Company B. His folks live at Northford, near New Haven. Though not more than twenty-one or thereabouts, he has knocked much around the world, on sea and land, and has seen some fighting on both. When I first saw him he was very sick, with no appetite. He declined offers of money, said he did not need anything. As I was quite anxious to do something, he confessed that he had a hankering for a good homemade rice pudding, thought he could relish it better than anything. At this time his stomach was very weak. The doctor, whom I consulted, said nourishment would do him more good than anything, but things in the hospital, though better than usual, revolted him. I soon procured B. his rice pudding. A Washington lady, Mrs. O.C., hearing his wish, made the pudding herself, and I took it up to him the next day. He subsequently told me he lived upon it for three or four days. This B. is a good sample of the American Eastern young man, the typical Yankee. I took a fancy to him, and gave him a nice pipe for a keepsake. He received afterwards a box of things from home, and nothing would do but I must take dinner with him, which I did, and a very good one it was. Two Brooklyn Boys Here in this same ward are two young men from Brooklyn, members of the 51st New York. I had known both the two as young lads at home, so they seemed near to me. One of them, J.L., lies there with an amputated arm, the stump healing pretty well. I saw him lying on the ground at Fredericksburg last December, all bloody, just after the arm was taken off. He was very phlegmatic about it, munching away at a cracker in the remaining hand, made no fuss. He will recover, and thinks and talks yet of meeting Johnny Rebs. A Sashash Brave The grand soldiers are not comprised in those of one side any more than the other. Here is a sample of an unknown southerner, a lad of seventeen. At the War Department a few days ago I witnessed a presentation of captured flags to the secretary. Among others, a soldier named Gant, of the 104th Ohio Volunteers, presented a rebel battle flag, which one of the officers stated to me was borne to the mouth of our cannon and planted there by a boy but seventeen years of age, who actually endeavored to stop the muzzle of the gun with fence-rails. He was killed in the effort, and the flagstaff was severed by a shot from one of our men. THE WOUNDED FROM CHANCELLORSVILLE MAY 63 As I write this, the wounded have begun to arrive from Hooker's command in the bloody Chancellorsville. I was down among the first arrivals. The men in charge told me the bad cases were yet to come. If that is so, I pity them, for these are bad enough. You ought to see the scene of the wounded arriving at the landing here at the foot of Sixth Street at night. Two boatloads came about half-past seven last night. A little after eight it rained a long and violent shower. The pale, helpless soldiers had been debarked and lay around on the wharf and neighborhood anywhere. The rain was probably grateful to them. At any rate, they were exposed to it. The few torches light up the spectacle. All around, on the wharf, on the ground... Out on side places, the men are lying on blankets, old quilts, etc., with bloody rags bound round heads, arms, and legs. The attendants are few, and at night few outsiders also, only a few hard-worked transportation men and drivers. The wounded are getting to be common, and people grow callous. The men, whatever their condition, lie there, 
and patiently wait till their turn comes to be taken up. Nearby, the ambulances are now arriving in clusters, and one after another is called to back up and take its load. Extreme cases are sent off on stretchers. The men generally make little or no ado, whatever their sufferings. A few groans that cannot be suppressed, and occasionally a scream of pain as they lift a man into the ambulance. Today, as I write, hundreds more are expected, and tomorrow and the next day more, and so on for many days. Quite often they arrive at the rate of a thousand a day. A night battle over a week since. May 12th. There was part of the late battle at Chancellorsville, second Fredericksburg, a little over a week ago, Saturday, Saturday night and Sunday, under General Joe Hooker, I would like to give just a glimpse of a moment's look in a terrible storm at sea, of which a few suggestions are enough, and full details impossible. The fighting had been very hot during the day, and after an intermission the latter part was resumed at night, and kept up with furious energy till three o'clock in the morning. That afternoon, Saturday, an attack sudden and strong by Stonewall Jackson had gained a great advantage to the southern army and broken our lines, entering us like a wedge, and leaving things in that position at dark. But Hooker at eleven at night made a desperate push, drove the Sussex forces back, restored his original lines, and resumed his plans. This night scrimmage was very exciting, and afforded countless strange and fearful pictures. The fighting had been general, both at Chancellorsville and northeast at Fredericksburg. We hear of some poor fighting, episodes, skedaddling on our part. I think not of it. I think of the fierce bravery, the general rule. One corps, the 6th Sedgwick's, fights four dashing and bloody battles in thirty-six hours, retreating in great jeopardy, losing largely but maintaining itself, fighting with the sternest desperation under all circumstances, getting over the Rappahannock only by the skin of its teeth, yet getting over. It lost many, many brave men. Yet it took vengeance, ample vengeance. But it was the tug of Saturday evening, and through the night and Sunday morning, I wanted to make a special note of. It was largely in the woods, and in quite a general engagement. The night was very pleasant, at times the moon shining out full and clear. All nature so calm in itself, the early summer grass so rich, and foliage of the trees. Yet there the battle raging, and many good fellows lying helpless, with new accessions to them, and every minute amid the rattle of muskets and crash of cannon, for there was an artillery contest, too, the red life-blood oozing out from heads or trunks or limbs upon that green and dew-cool grass. Patches of the woods take fire, and several of the wounded, unable to move, are consumed. Quite large spaces are swept over, burning the dead also. Some of the men have their hair and beards singed. Some burns on their faces and hands. Others holes burnt in their clothing. The flashes of fire from the cannon, the quick flaring flames and smoke, and the immense roar the musketry so general, the light nearly bright enough for each side to see the other, the crashing, tramping of men, the yelling, close quarters. We hear the Sechas yells. Our men cheer loudly back, especially if Hooker is in sight. Hand-to-hand -hand conflicts, 
Each side stands up to it, brave, determined as demons. They often charge upon us. A thousand deeds are done worth to write newer, greater poems on. And still the wood's on fire. Still many are not only scorched. Too many, unable to move, are burned to death. Then the camps of the wounded. Oh, heavens, what scene is this? Is this indeed humanity? these butchers' shambles? There are several of them. There they lie, in the largest, in an open space in the woods, from two hundred to three hundred poor fellows. The groans and screams, the odor of blood, mixed with the fresh scent of the night, the grass, the trees. That slaughterhouse. Oh, well it is that their mothers, their sisters, cannot see them cannot conceive, and never conceived, these things. One man is shot by a shell, both in the arm and leg. Both are amputated. There lie the rejected members. Some have their legs blown off, some bullets through the breast, some indescribably horrid wounds in the face or head, all mutilated, sickening, torn, gouged out, some in the abdomen, some mere boys. Many rebels badly hurt. They take their regular turns with the rest, just the same as any. The surgeons use them just the same. Such is the camp of the wounded. Such a fragment, a reflection afar off from the bloody scene. While all over the clear, large moon comes out at times, softly, quietly shining. Amid the woods, that scene of flitting souls, Amid the crack and crash and yelling sounds, the impalpable perfume of the woods, and yet the pungent, stifling smoke, the radiance of the moon, looking from heaven at intervals so placid, the sky so heavenly, the clear, obscure, up there, those buoyant upper oceans, a few large placid stars beyond coming silently and languidly out and then disappearing. The melancholy draperied night above, around, and there upon the roads, the fields, and in those woods that contest, never one more desperate in any age or land, both parties now in force, masses, no fancy battle, no semi-play, but fierce and savage demons fighting there, Courage and scorn of death the rule, exceptions almost none. What history, I say, can ever give, for who can know, the mad determined tussle of the armies, in all their separate large and little squads, as this, each steeped from crown to toe in desperate mortal purports? Who know the conflict, hand to hand, the many conflicts in the dark? those shadowy, tangled, flashing, moon-beamed woods, the writhing groups and squads, the cries, the din, the cracking guns and pistols, the distant cannon, the cheers and calls and threats and awful music of the oaths, the indescribable mix, the officers' orders, persuasions, encouragements, the devils fully roused in human hearts, the strong shout, charge, men, charge! the flash of the naked sword, and rolling flame and smoke, and still the broken, clear, and clouded heaven, and still again the moonlight pouring silvery soft its radiant patches over all. Who paint the scene, 
the sudden partial panic of the afternoon, at dusk? Who paint the irrepressible advance of the second division of the third corps, under Hooker himself, suddenly ordered up, those rapid-filling phantoms through the woods? Who show what moves there in the shadows, fluid and firm, to save, and it did save, the army's name, perhaps the nation, as there the veterans hold the field? Brave Barry falls not yet, but death has marked him. Soon he falls. Unnamed remains the bravest soldier. Of scenes like these I say, who writes, who e'er can write the story? Of many a score, I thousands, north and south, of unwrit heroes, unknown heroisms, incredible, impromptu, first-class desperations, who tells? No history ever. No poem sings, no music sounds. Those bravest men of all, those deeds. No formal general's report, nor book in the library, nor column in the paper, embalms the bravest, north or south, east or west. Unnamed, unknown, remain, and still remain, the bravest soldiers. Our manliest, our boys, our hardy darlings, no picture gives them. Likely the typic one of them, standing no doubt for hundreds, thousands, crawls aside to some bush clump or ferny tuft, on receiving his death shot, there sheltering a little while, soaking roots, grass, and soil with red blood. The battle advances, retreats, flits from the scene, sweeps by, and there, haply with pain and suffering, yet less, far less than is supposed, the last lethargy winds like a serpent round him. The eyes glaze in death. None wrecks. Perhaps the burial squads in truce a week afterwards search not the secluded spot, and there at last the bravest soldier crumbles in Mother Earth, unburied and unknown. Some Specimen Cases June 18th In one of the hospitals I find Thomas Haley, Company M, 4th New York Cavalry. A regular Irish boy, a fine specimen of youthful physical manliness, shot through the lungs, inevitably dying, came over to this country from Ireland to enlist, has not a single friend or acquaintance here, is sleeping soundly at this moment, but it is the sleep of death has a bullet hole straight through the lung. I saw Tom when first brought here three days since, and didn't suppose he could live twelve hours. Yet he looks well enough in the face to a casual observer. He lies there with his frame exposed above the waist, all naked, for coolness. A fine-built man, the tan not yet bleached from his cheek and neck. It is useless to talk to him as with his sad hurt and the stimulants they give him, the utter strangeness of every object, face, furniture, etc., the poor fellow, even when awake, is like some frightened, shy animal. Much of the time he sleeps, or half-sleeps. Sometimes I thought he knew more than he showed. I often come and sit by him in perfect silence. He will breathe for ten minutes as softly and evenly as a young babe asleep. Poor youth, so handsome, athletic, with profuse, beautiful, shining hair. 
One time, as I sat looking at him while he lay asleep, he suddenly, without the least start, awakened, opened his eyes, gave me a long, steady look, turning his face very slightly to gaze easier. One long, clear, silent look, a slight sigh, then turned back and went into his doze again. Little he knew, poor death-stricken boy, the heart of the stranger that hovered near. W. H. E., Company F., 2nd New York. His disease is pneumonia. He lay sick at the wretched hospital below Aquia Creek for seven or eight days before brought here. He was detailed from his regiment to go there and help as nurse, but was soon taken down himself. Is an elderly, sallow-faced, rather gaunt, gray-haired man, a widower, with children. He expressed a great desire for good, strong green tea. An excellent lady, Mrs. W., of Washington, soon sent him a package. Also a small sum of money. The doctor said give him the tea at pleasure. It lay on the table by his side, and he used it every day. He slept a great deal, could not talk much as he grew deaf, occupied bed 15, ward I, armory. The same lady above, Mrs. W., sent the man a large package of tobacco. J. G. lies in bed 52, ward I, is of Company B, 7th Pennsylvania. I gave him a small sum of money, some tobacco, and envelopes. To a man adjoining also gave twenty-five cents. He flushed in the face when I offered it, refused it at first. But as I found he had not a cent, and was very fond of having the daily papers to read, I pressed it on him. He was evidently very grateful, but said little. J. T. L. of Company F, Ninth New Hampshire, lies in bed 37, Ward I, is very fond of tobacco. I furnish him some, also with a little money, has gangrene of the feet, a pretty bad case, will surely have to lose three toes, is a regular specimen of an old-fashioned, rude, hardy New England countryman, impressing me with his likeness to that celebrated singed cat, who was better than she looked. Bed 3, Ward E, Armory, has a great hankering for pickles, something pungent, after consulting the doctor, I gave him a small bottle of horseradish, also some apples, also a book. Some of the nurses are excellent. The woman nurse in this ward I like very much. Mrs. Wright. A year afterwards I found her in Mansion House Hospital, Alexandria. She is a perfect nurse. In one bed a young man, Marcus Small, Company K, 7th Maine. Sick with dysentery and typhoid fever. Pretty critical case. I talk with him often. He thinks he will die. Looks like it, indeed. I write a letter for him home to East Liverpool, Maine. I let him talk to me a little, but not much. Advise him to keep very quiet. Do most of the talking myself. Stay quite a while with him as he holds on to my hand. Talk to him in a cheering but slow, low, and measured manner. Talk about his furlough, and going home as soon as he is able to travel. Thomas Lindley, 1st Pennsylvania Cavalry, shot very badly through the foot. Poor young man, he suffers horridly, has to be constantly dosed with morphine, his face ashy and glazed, bright young eyes. I give him a large handsome apple, lay it in sight, tell him to have it roasted in the morning, as he generally feels easier then, and can eat a little breakfast. I write two letters for him. Opposite, an old Quaker lady sits by the side of her son, Amor Moore, 2nd U.S. Artillery. 
shot in the head two weeks since, very low, quite rational, from hips down paralyzed, he will surely die. I speak a very few words to him every day and evening. He answers pleasantly, wants nothing. He told me soon after he came about his home affairs, his mother had been an invalid, and he feared to let her know his condition. He died soon after she came. My Preparations for Visits In my visits to the hospital I found it was in the simple matter of personal presence, and emanating ordinary cheer and magnetism, that I succeeded, and helped more than by medical nursing or delicacies or gifts of money or anything else. During the war I possessed the perfection of physical health. My habit, when practicable, was to prepare for starting out on one of those daily or nightly tours of from a couple to four or five hours, by fortifying myself with previous rest, the bath, clean clothes, a good meal, and as cheerful an appearance as possible. Ambulance Processions June 23rd, Sundown as I sit writing this paragraph, I see a train of about thirty huge four-horse wagons, used as ambulances, filled with wounded, passing up 14th Street, on their way probably to Columbian, Carver, and Mount Pleasant hospitals. This is the way the men come in now, seldom in small numbers, but almost always in these long, sad processions. Through the past winter, while our army lay opposite Fredericksburg, the like strings of ambulances were of frequent occurrence along 7th Street, passing slowly up from the steamboat wharf, with loads from Aquia Creek. Bad Wounds, the Young The soldiers are nearly all young men, and far more American than is generally supposed. I should say nine-tenths are native-born. Among the arrivals from Chancellorsville I find a large proportion of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois men. As usual, there are all sorts of wounds. Some of the men fearfully burnt from the explosions of artillery caissons. One ward has a long row of officers, some with ugly hurts. Yesterday was perhaps worse than usual. Amputations are going on. The attendants are dressing wounds. As you pass by, you must be on your guard where you look. I saw the other day a gentleman, a visitor apparently from curiosity, in one of the wards, stop by and turn a moment to look at an awful wound they were probing. He turned pale, and in a moment more he had fainted away and fallen to the floor. The most inspiriting of all wars shows. June 29th. Just before sundown this evening a very large cavalry force went by. A fine sight. The men evidently had seen service. First came a mounted band of sixteen bugles, drums, and cymbals, playing wild martial tunes, made my heart jump. Then the principal officers, then company after company with their officers at their heads, making, of course, the main part of the cavalcade, then a long train of men with led horses, lots of mounted negroes with special horses, and a long string of baggage wagons, each drawn by four horses, and then a motley rear-guard. It was a pronouncedly warlike and gay show. The sabres clanked. The men looked young and healthy and strong. The electric tramping of so many horses on the hard road, and the gallant bearing, fine seat, and bright-faced appearance of a thousand and more young American men were so good to see. An hour later another troop went by, smaller in numbers, perhaps three hundred men. They too looked like serviceable men. Campaigners used to field and fight. July 3rd. 
this forenoon for more than an hour, again long strings of cavalry, several regiments, very fine men and horses, four or five abreast. I saw them in 14th Street, coming in town from north, several hundred extra horses, some of the mares with colts, trotting along. Appeared to be a number of prisoners, too. How inspiriting always the cavalry regiments! Our men are generally well mounted, feel good, are young, gay on the saddle, their blankets in a roll behind them, their sabres clanking at their sides. This noise and movement and the tramp of many horses' hoofs has a curious effect upon one. The bugles play. Presently you hear them afar off, deadened, mixed with other noises. Then just as they had all passed, a string of ambulances commenced from the other way, moving up 14th Street, north, slowly wending along bearing a large lot of wounded to the hospitals. End of chapter 3